We're about to begin a new series called Route 66, a journey through the Bible. And you're invited to join us on a road trip where we go through the Bible in one year, 12 months from beginning to end, from generations to revolution. <laughs> I mean, from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> so what's that going to look like? Well, what we're going to do is uh, with 66 books, thus it's called Route 66, we're going to give a brief overview of each book every Sunday morning, a different book, and then we're going to kind of dive into and take one section, one passage from that book that's relevant and applicable and kind of sums up the theme, sums up the message of that book. And so we're excited about that, and we're looking to start that just in a couple of weeks. What many people don't realize is that the Bible is a communal book. It was designed basically to be read and discussed in the context of community. And so we're asking all of our life groups this next year to follow along every week as we gather together in those small groups, go through the questions, go through the exercises, and they're all designed basically to help us understand and to build that intimacy that we want to have with God and with one another. You see, our destination uh, purpose is not just to accumulate more knowledge but rather to have a true purposeful connection with Jesus and uh, with one another as well. Did you know that uh, nearly half of all evangelical Christians have never read the Bible from cover to cover? Half. Which is why we're encouraging this morning to join with us this next year and do an individual journey of reading through the Bible with us each day. How are we going to do that? Well, we're going to give you a, a little uh, Bible reading schedule, kind of a bookmark that we're going to ask you to put in your Bible and check off chapters each day that you read. Also, there's a free app with a reading schedule. We're going to ask that you use that and then basically carve out about 15 minutes a day reading about three, maybe four chapters of the Bible. And in doing that, every day we're going to get through the Bible together uh, in one year. We're going to start uh, September 10th. A lot of times people start the first of the year. We're going to start uh, kind of an odd time, but it's going to be the second week into September. Uh, but basically, it's not about just powering through the Bible. <laughs> it's understanding the big picture of God's redemptive history. As we get the big overall idea, the big theme of God, uh, God's history. In fact, the word history, if you split it in half, that word, it's his story. That's his story. Uh, history is God's redemptive story down through the ages. And I'm excited about what God is going to do in and through us as we go through God's word and discover his powerful plan and his gracious uh, purpose in our lives. And so get ready to grow this year. I believe it's going to be an exciting year uh, before us. But before we get started, basically hitting the road in a couple of weeks, what I want to do in the next couple of weeks is basically kind of get our bearings and, and pack our bags and get ready for that spiritual road trip. And what's the first step? Uh, I believe the first step is having a complete trust, a full reliance upon our roadmap, the GPS. Uh, otherwise, we're not going to go anywhere. We need to get a better understanding as far as how trustworthy, reliable, and dependable our roadmap is. 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us this, All scripture is inspired by God, theonoustos, and is profitable for four things, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And so the Bible is what adequately equips us, it enables us basically on this journey that we call life with God. But like any roadmap, can we trust it to get to our destination? How do we know that the Bible is 
dependable and reliable. I mean, we're talking about a 2,000-year-old book, right? Written by fallible men. How do we know it's relevant? How do we know there's not errors in it? I mean, how do we really know this book can be trusted and it doesn't have mistakes? What we need to do is take a closer look at this roadmap before we, we hit the road running. Why? Because we desperately need a greater confidence, a fuller assurance, basically, than ever before in the reliability and trustworthiness of this book that we call the Word of God. And I guarantee you can bet your life on it. You can bet your destiny on it. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your, your word. We pray that you would continue to open our eyes to the fact that it is a, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And Father, my, my hope and my prayer is that we would grow deeper in our confidence, in our, in our commitment to the word of God. And uh, Father, we thank you for the, the journey that we're on, that you've taken us uh, on, and we pray that you would draw us closer to yourself, that we might be more uh, moldable and teachable and, and reachable. <laughs> as far as your Holy Spirit working in our lives and making us more and more conformed into the image of Christ our Savior. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I've told the story before about when I was 14 years of age, I did one of the dumbest things I think I've ever done in my entire life. Uh, I'm not saying this is true of all teens, but it certainly was the case uh, for me that being a teenager uh, carries with it a certain amount of... Um, of brain damage, and it, it basically repairs, it repairs itself uh, in a few years. Now, when I was 14, I was living in a small town in Minnesota uh, called Freeborn, population 301. There were more kids in the school, elementary through high school, than there were in the town. These were all farm kids. My dad was a music and English teacher in uh, Freeborn High School, and uh, Freeborn, like thousands of other farming communities spread across the, the prairie, uh, was very typical. And if you know that part of the country at all, you know that the winters can be brutal on the, on the prairie. In fact, because of the blistering snowstorms and blizzards that would hit, the schools all had a certain allotment of what they called snow days. And so we would always wait in the morning when the snow was really blowing and, and hopefully we'd get out of school. And it was called a snow day. Well, on this particular snow day, uh, school was canceled and my friend Kevin and I decided to go out on our snowmobiles and race around town. And we roared down the middle of uh, the deserted Main Street, which in Freeborn was really the only street. But we headed for the lake, head, uh, headed just on the edge of town, and it's about two and a half, three miles across, and we decided to race each other across the frozen ice uh, on this blizzard day. And we took off from the main dock, which in Freeborn was uh, the only dock, and together, uh, we just gave it full throttle, side by side, roaring across the snow and the ice, and we immediately experienced what is called a whiteout. Now, a whiteout is where the wind and the snow is blowing so hard and, 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 and strong in front of us, you couldn't see five feet in front of you. We didn't know where we were. We were totally disoriented. We had no idea where we were actually going. But since we were somewhat brain damaged, <laughs> that didn't slow us down a bit. And again, we kept racing side by side, full throttle, through the storm, looking at each other and grinning like a couple of idiots. Well, after several minutes, we suddenly had to veer off abruptly and slam on our brakes before we would have plowed into the dock, the very same dock that we had started from. We started laughing because we realized that we had made, in about 10 minutes, a full 360-degree circle and ended up in that storm back at the very spot that we started from. But the terrifying thing was what happened when we got to my friend's house. His dad 
lit into us. He started yelling at us, giving us the riot act, telling us we were so stupid. Why? He told us that on the far side of that lake was a fresh spring that fed into the lake. It was open, deep water, which meant that we were heading for disaster. In fact, every year you would read about some, now this is the land of 10,000 lakes, every year some snowmobile person would be out there on ice that was too thin and break through and lose his life. And on that particular day, my friend and I were heading straight toward disaster. In fact, death itself, and we didn't even know it. We had no reference points. There was no sky that we could see. There was no shoreline. There were no trees. There were no markings. There was nothing to gauge where we were or where we were going. We had completely lost our way. You know where I'm going with this. <laughs> the same thing is true in life. Without any reference points in our lives, we have no idea where we are or where we're going. And yet we race on ahead anyway. <laughs> Someone once said, man is the only creature on earth who runs faster when he's lost his way. We race ahead toward disaster, certain death without even realizing it, we've lost our way. In this race we call life, we desperately need reference points. And the Lord has given us, God has given to us, the ultimate reference point. And that's his word, the Bible, his revelation to us. It is our source of absolute truth. George Barna, in his book, What Americans Believe, did a national survey a few years ago. He surveyed about 1,000 people, and he asked the question, do you believe in absolute truth? What's amazing, 66%, about two-thirds of all adults said, no, we do not believe in absolute truth. Two-thirds. In other words, there is no ultimate reference point. We're just blindly out there in the storm, heading toward wherever, finding our own way. But what was incredible about that survey is that when he surveyed mainline church people, so-called Christians in mainline denominations, the percentage was even higher. Three, four, 75% of people who are in mainline churches do not believe in absolute truth. They've thrown out the reference point, the Word of God. George Barna makes this statement. He says, we might expect such inclusions to be drawn from those who reject the church. But for such an important and central element of the Christian community as the mainline churches, to dismiss absolute truth is truly an eye-opening statement about the spiritual condition of both the church and the nation. You know, it's obvious that we live in a society that has, by and large, thrown out any standard or sense of absolute truth, including, of course, the Bible. Why is that? We live in a time where any reference points to, to gauge our lives as far as who we are and where we're going has been ignored or just outright rejected. Why is that? We live in a time where tragically even many mainline churches ignore the Word of God as the ultimate reference points. And so we live in a day and age basically where human opinion is considered more important than creeds, where personal experience are given more uh, credibility than doctrine, where, where basically uh, personal feelings are recognized as more important than objective truth. And so as a tragic result, even in churches today, people are confused about what's right and wrong. They're basically frantic in search of trying to basically find answers to life. And they are unfulfilled in their desire to find peace and purpose. Most people are heading out into the storm without any reference points, and right up ahead is disaster and death. You know, I'm convinced that what we're seeing today 
is basically one of the signs of the end times. Do I believe that the, we're in the end times? Absolutely. I believe that Jesus could very well come back in our lifetime when we look at the signs of the times out and around us in the world today. The Old Testament prophet Amos drops a bombshell when he says this. He predicts this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Why? Because they've already rejected the truth. They've already rejected the reference point of God's word. And so there's a famine in the land. So what is it that we really believe? And, and why do we believe it? Why is it so critical that we look at this reference point called the Bible as our firm foundation, as the, as the, as the basis for a solid belief system? Why is it so important? Because what we believe determines three huge things about us. First of all, what we believe determines your identity. What you believe determines who you are. People don't realize that. Proverbs 23, 7 puts it this way, for as he thinks within himself, so he is. I'm absolutely convinced that what you believe, what you value, what you have convictions about will not only determine your character, it will determine your identity, and it'll basically shape who you are. What you believe determines your identity. Secondly, what you believe determines your activity. In other words, what you believe determines what you do. Jesus points out over in Mark chapter 7, For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed the evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. The Apostle Paul adds, do not be conformed to this world. Do not let the world squeeze you into its mold. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind, what you think about, so that you will prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And so again, what you believe in your heart and mind determines what you do, good or bad. And so everything we do has its roots and what we believe down in the innermost recesses of who we are. Finally, what you believe not only determines who you are and what you do, what you believe determines your destiny. Think about it. It's amazing to think that what we believe determines where we're going to spend trillions and trillions and trillions of years out into eternity. It, it, it all boils down to basically what you believe today. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And so again, what you believe determines your identity. What you believe determines your activity. And what you believe determines your destiny. And so it's absolutely essential and critically important that we re-examine and reaffirm the reference points of what we believe and why we believe it. Why is it that we follow the Word of God? Uh, why do we hold it to be true? As Christians, our reference point begins with the absolute conviction that this book that we call the Bible is absolutely the revealed Word of God to us. And that's how He speaks to us. It's the ultimate reference point. It's the owner's manual. And that's where we start. That's where we begin. That's the foundation upon which we stand. 
And so in the short time we have together here this morning, let me just offer a, a few key reasons why we believe that this book, the Word of God, is actually uh, the revealed Word of God and why it is so applicable to us. Why do we believe in the Bible? Why use it as our reference point? Remember the bumper sticker a few years back? You'd see it all the time. Uh, the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. Well, that sounds good, but it's usually not good enough for most people. Why is it considered the owner's manual? How is it that God speaks to us through this book, 2,000 years old? How do we experience God through it? How do we really know it's the actual word of God? Three basic reasons this morning, real quickly, as to why we can believe the Bible. Why we can have full confidence and assurance that this is truly the, the word of God. Why we believe that this is trustworthy and reliable and can be depended upon. Why? Three reasons. First of all, it claims to be the word of God. Secondly, it seems to be the Word of God. And thirdly, it proves to be the Word of God. Let me begin with the fact that the Bible claims to be the Word of God. Somebody might say, well, so what? <laughs> Just because it claims to be the Word of God, does it make it the Word of God? And that is certainly true. If the LA Times came out tomorrow morning on the front page, it said, uh, the LA Times is the Word of God. That doesn't necessarily make it the Word of God, just because they claim it. But that's where we have to start, why? Because basically we have to demonstrate that we have come to that conclusion not based upon some committee in the first century that got together and said, hey, this is really good stuff. What do you say we call it? The Word of God. All in favor say aye. Aye. That didn't happen. <laughs> the Bible itself claims to be the Word of God in and apart from anyone somebody else might claim that it is. So that's where we have to go from, from that point. And there are three key passages that we need to understand, three key passages where the Bible claims itself to be the very Word of God. And the first is uh, 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says this, All Scripture is inspired by God, and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is inspired. What does that mean? Now, when you think of the word inspired, you might think, hey, when I look at a, a beautiful sunset, I'm inspired. Uh, when I look at the Grand Canyon, like I took my family several years back, and, and Katie, this, this years ago, and she was only about four or five years old, when she first saw the Grand Canyon, her first statement was, Daddy, is that real? <laughs> It was so inspiring, so overwhelming. If you listen to uh, you know, a great rendition of God Bless America, you might be inspired. But when the Bible uses that word, it's totally different. It doesn't mean what we think it means. That word inspired in the Greek is theonoustos, God breathe, theonoustos. It basically has the idea that, that it declares that God himself is the origin. He's the source. He's the breath. The very word of God comes from him. And so in light of that, when we talk about inspiration, we need to understand that it's important what inspiration is not. Inspiration is not just a bunch of guys getting together and writing down good stuff. Inspiration is not uh, just man's words with a general idea from God. Ge uh, inspiration is not just God dictating verbatim to the writers. Here's a great definition of what we mean when we say the Bible's inspired. A professor of mine uh, summed it up. Uh, by inspiration, we mean that by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, God's special revelation was constituted through human writers using their personalities, using their abilities, and setting forth the truth exactly the way God intended. On top of that, we need to understand 
that inspiration does not mean it comes in degrees. In other words, some people think, well, certain parts of the Bible are inspired, other parts not so much. Certain parts are, are God's word and, and other parts uh, not so much. But 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture, all of it, is inspired by God. That means even the parts you don't like. Certain parts of the Bible I don't like. Certain things I might think, oh, really? But it comes as a package. It's God's truth. We can't pick and choose when it comes to God's word. Chuck Colson calls this the salad bar approach to, to scripture in order to justify our own ideas and our own prejudices. He writes this. Once you accept in principle that scripture may be wrong in parts, you start performing surgery on the text. You sort out different historical details and you stack them in a pile called believable, and then you label the rest as unbelievable and dump it out. But scripture is not a beanbag chair, he writes. It cannot be reshaped to fit individual tastes. We must accept the total message. Otherwise, all we're doing is remaking Jesus and his message to fit our own personal prejudices. Picking and choosing the contents of your salad is one thing, but picking and choosing among God's word is a recipe for disaster. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, all scripture is theonoustos, God breathed. And it's profitable for four things. What does God's word do for you? Paul says four things real quickly. First of all, it's profitable for teaching. It imparts positive truth. It's profitable for reproof. It imparts negative truth. It's profitable for correction. It shows you where you got off the track, where you got off the path. And then it's also profitable for training in righteousness. In other words, it shows you how to get back on the track, the right track, and, and keep on going. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. A second key phrase is found in Hebrews 1, chapter 1, and, chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. The writer of Hebrews says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. First of all, God spoke through the prophets, and then God has spoken to us through his Son. So the Bible claims to be an accurate and an authoritative record of God's word spoken to the prophets through the prophets, of the Old Testament and also through his very son. Third passage is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Peter writes this, but, but know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's what we mean when we say inspiration. God's Spirit moved men to write down exactly what God wanted them to write down. And so in this and in numerous other passages, the point is this. The Bible itself claims to be the Word of God. That's where we start. But then secondly, the Bible seems to be the Word of God. What do we mean by that? What do you mean it seems to be the Word of God? In other words, by all outward appearance, by all indicators on the outside, it, it's clearly apparent that this book truly is the Word of God. How is that? Well, first of all, it's an incredibly unique book, more unique than any book ever written in all of human history. First of all, it's unique in its publication. First book ever published was the Bible. 
1450. It's been translated into thousands of languages, more than any other book in the world. More Bibles were sold this past year than the the top five bestsellers combined. The Bible is the only book that gives history a purpose. It's his story. (laughs) The Bible is the only book with detailed prophecies, hundreds of detailed prophecies that literally came true. It sure does seem to be the Word of God. And you know, when you think about it, I think it just makes sense that God wanted to make sure that His special revelation to mankind was to be preserved and passed on in a user-friendly format, like a book. Century after century, generation after generation, He would put it all in not just any book, but a very unique book. Not only is this book unique in its publication, it is unique in its unity. People think that the Bible is one book. Actually, it's 66 books. That's why we call it Route 66. 66 separate books make one book. It's a library of books, really. It's it's written by more than 40 writers over a period of about 1,600 years. It was written on three different continents, Asia, Africa, and Europe, and in different places with little chance of collaboration. Arabia, Syria, parts of the Bible written in the deserts of Sinai, Greece, Italy, the prisons of Rome, the island of Patmos, the wilderness of Judea, the rivers of Babylon, synagogues and hillsides, different places. These 40 writers wrote in different languages. The Bible is actually in three different languages, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic. They wrote at different times, times of peace, times of war, different moods in the depths of sorrow, in the heights of joy. They wrote in different styles. A lot of people don't realize that the Bible has a lot of different styles to it. Prose and poetry, history, proverbs, allegory, theology, and of course parables. They had different backgrounds, these 40 writers. Different walks of life. Luke was a physician. David was a shepherd. Paul was a theologian. Daniel was a prime minister. Matthew was a tax collector. Peter was a fisherman. Joshua was a military general. Moses was a political leader. Solomon was a king. Ezra was a scribe. Nehemiah, a butler. Amos was a herdsman, a picker of figs. (laughs) These were men who had very little formal education. And yet, (laughs) there are people around the world that study the Bible for its literary value alone. It seems to be the Word of God. It shows a genius like no other writing in all of human history. These men spoke on hundreds of controversial subjects, and yet they all agree. It seems to be the Word of God. And so they spoke at different time periods, different continents and places and languages and times and moods and styles and backgrounds, and yet they all agree. Now that's amazing. The Bible is coming from one, going from one place to another, and, and yet it's as it's just if a, a, a master mind controlled it all. It's all harmonious. Now, maybe you've had some people say this, and I've had people come up and say, well, the Bible has mistakes in it. It has errors in it. Yeah, show me one. Well, I don't know. Where'd you hear that? Well, I heard it from somebody. <laughs> Listen, there may be what would some people call alleged discrepancies, but they can be easily explained logically. The Bible is all harmonious. It is inspired. And any study of the Bible, listen, it reveals itself in the wonderful flow of God's grace. I mean, in the the Old Testament, salvation is prepared. Christ is coming. In the gospel, salvation is effected. Christ has come. In Acts, salvation is preached. In the letters, salvation is explained. And in Revelation, salvation. Uh, salvation is fulfilled. These men all believed that what they were writing down was the very Word of God. And they wrote with absolute confidence, even though they themselves were nothing really special. We see how almost 4,000 times throughout the Bible, 
Uh, these writers uh, refer to their writing as the word of God. Thus saith the Lord. And they quoted him. They don't try to defend what they wrote. They don't try to convince us that it's uh, inspired. They just crank it out. And they speak with the, about the unknown with the same certainty as they do with historical information. And so it's a unique book in its unity. It seems to be the word of God. Thirdly, the Bible is unique in its indestructibility. There have been those down through the centuries who have tried to destroy the Bible. Uh, for example, in 303 A.D., the emperor uh, Diocletian declared that every Bible in the Roman Empire was to be destroyed. If you had a Bible, you were to be killed. He thought this will end Christianity once and for all. And so he, he erected certain arches around the empire declaring triumph over Christianity. How ironic that just 25 years later, the next emperor, Emperor Constantine, ordered 50 perfect copies of the Bible to be made for distribution. 200 years ago, the uh, philosopher and devout atheist Voltaire said, 100 years from now, you'll never hear again about the Bible. You'll never hear no more about it. Less than 50 years after that statement, his book sold for about eight cents. A New Testament uh, manuscript was sold by the Russians to the British for uh, half a million dollars, and the printing press in Voltaire's house was used to print Bibles. God has a sense of humor. Someone once said, the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. It seems to be the Word of God. It is unique in its indestructibility. God has preserved his book. Several years ago, I had a, a, a cultist come knocking on my door. Most of the time, I don't I give up trying to engage in conversation, but this time I, I talked to this guy at length, and we discussed, among other things, the authority of the Bible. And it was his contention that the Bible had been corrupted over the years by men who had twisted it up, and the content just couldn't be trusted anymore. And of course, his own cult book could be, but I pointed out the overwhelming evidence to the contrary including the, the discovery in 1949 of the 2,000-year-old Dead Sea Scrolls that had been buried for 2,000 years. They included every book of the Old Testament except for the book of Ruth. And it lines up perfectly with what we have today, remarkably. Furthermore, the fact that we have over 4,000 manuscripts or pieces of manuscripts today that date back to the first century. We don't have the original autographs, but what we, what we do have is so close, it really doesn't make any difference. And besides that, I asked this guy, listen, do you think God is all-powerful? Oh, yeah. Do you think God is big enough and powerful enough to make sure that his word, the Bible, would not be corrupted over the centuries? Don't you think that's possible? But he didn't have an answer for that. So both it's in, in its unity and it's in indestructibility, the Bible seems to be the word of God. It just makes sense. It claims to be the word of God. It seems to be the word of God. And next week, we're going to talk about how the Bible proves to be the Word of God. We're going to look at the historical evidence, the archaeological evidence, some of the scientific evidence. It proves to be the very Word of God. But this morning, what are the takeaways? In application this morning, one of the deepest desires I have is that we might grow as a, as a church, as individuals, in a deep appreciation, an absolute confidence, a full assurance that this is not only God's Word, but it is our final authority. It is our ultimate reference point. It's how we gauge our lives. And what we've looked at in these so far is just the tip of the iceberg. And this book is not only 100% reliable, 100% trustworthy, it's just as relevant for us today as it was 2,000 years ago when God directed the men to write down exactly what they wrote down. It speaks to the issues to us in the 21st century. It is timeless. Why? Because God is timeless. 
God is eternal, and his word is too. That's why we here at Foothills Church, listen, we are committed to the teaching of God's word. It is the basis for everything we believe and everything that we practice. It is our foundation. A friend of mine years ago, a young man by the name of Mark, stood up in front of his small church one day, one morning, and uh, he held up the Bible, and he said, does anybody know what's in the book of Leviticus? As he held up the Bible, and nobody knew. So he opened up the Bible, and he got to the Leviticus, and he, he took the 20 or so pages, and he tore it out, and he threw it into a trash can next to the pulpit. People gasped. He held up the Bible, and he says, how about the book of Judges? Anybody know what's in the book of Judges? Anybody? Nobody. He tore out the book of Judges, <laughs> threw in the trash. What about Ezra, Nahum, Habakkuk? <laughs> Nobody knew. In a few minutes, he had torn out most of the Bible, threw it on the floor, and all he was left was was barely just the cover and a few pages. And people in the congregation were shocked. He had desecrated God's word. He tore it up and threw it in the, in the trash. And he said this, this in response. He said quietly, what I have done is nothing compared to what you have done in not knowing, studying, and applying God's word to your life. What are we doing with the treasure of God's word? Three things in closing. Let me just encourage you. Number one, be the best handler of God's word that you can be. 2 Timothy 2.15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. To handle it accurately means we need to know it. We need to study it. We need to be people of the book. It's not just for pastors. This is for all believers. If you haven't already, let me encourage you. you know, uh, uh, get a Bible dictionary. Get a Bible atlas. Get a few commentaries in your home or your, your library at your office. Be a faithful Student of, of God's word, handle it accurately. Secondly, stay alive. Stay alive in your own study of the word. Make it your daily reading, uh, study, uh, the teaching of God's word. Make it such a part of your very DNA. May it be embedded and implanted deep in the very inner recesses of who you are. Now, none of us have extra time to do that, do we? We're all, we're all going 100 miles an hour. And yet we always find time to do the things that are more important to us, don't we? We have no problem watching the World Series for hours or watching the Big Bang Theory or Survivor, but we won't spend 10 or 15 minutes cracking open God's Word to see what He has to say to us every day. Make His Word your number one priority daily. I love Joshua 1.8. The Lord says to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. The word meditate has the idea of chewing on it, like a, like a cow chews its cud over and over again. You ought to meditate on it day and night. Why? So that you might be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. You want to be prosperous. You want to be successful. In God's eyes, get into his word. Be a person of the book. Finally, and this is critical, make sure your faith is not just cerebral. John Ordberg once made, made this point. He said, the purpose of knowing Scripture is not to get 100% on some heavenly entrance exam. The Bible is not a textbook. It's God's letter of love to us. It's how he speaks to us. It's how he reveals who he is and what your plan and purpose is. Bible study is something we all need. But here's the danger. Unfortunately, there is the ever-present danger of studying God's Word just for head knowledge accumulation instead of heart knowledge application. I've often said, it took me four years to get through seminary and ten years to get over it. 
Why? Because of the warning that Paul has in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8, 12, uh, 1 and 2. He says, knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. In other words, if you think you know everything, you really don't know anything. <laughs> knowledge makes arrogant. Instead of being puffed up, the Word of God is designed to build up. Paul makes it clear that we should always be humble in our, in our, in our spirit, spirit and pursuit of, the, of knowledge of His Word with the realization that we will never plummet the depths of the riches of God's uh, message to us in, in, in His Word. St. Augustine put it this way. He said, The Bible is like a body of water, shallow enough for a baby to wade in, deep enough for an elephant to drown in. <laughs> Uh, we can go from, from generations to revolutions. We can go from Genesis to Revelation uh, in a year. But we will never at any point ever plummet the depths of all that's there because God's Word is eternal. And we're going to spend the rest of our lives understanding and studying God's Word. In fact, we'll, I believe we'll be studying God's Word for all of eternity because the Bible says that God's Word is eternal. There's so much that God has reserved for us in this book. Paul goes on to instruct Timothy. He says this, Retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. He's talking about God's Word. The Holy Scriptures are such a treasure. And men and women, we need to use it as our, our gauge, our reference point, our owner's manual, our tech support. It's God's love letter to us. It's how we hear from God. It's how God speaks to us, and we need to hear what he has to say to us every single day. So where do we begin? Let me just encourage you, be here uh, weekly this next year as we go through God's word. And my hope and prayer is that you will know it, apply it, teach it, live it out. It makes all the difference in the world, and we might grow uh, for our good and for his glory. Let's pray.